It's the Stazapod, and guess what? We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. I want to focus on uh, what I consider to be a writing tutorial for anyone who is a creative type, whether you're a comic book person, screenwriter, filmmaker, whatever the case may be. Uh, I want to point out a trope uh, that is everywhere in all media we consume, and I want to give an example of subverting that trope, and I think it will be very educational, very helpful people that are trying to be better writers and tell better stories. We got that, plus we also got Q&As, so welcome to Destazapod, let's go. Heterosexual consummation, that is the phrase, that is the trope we are pinpointing today. Probably is a very evocative a uh, pair of words for most people. What it means is uh, it's basically something we've seen in 99% of all media ever created. Uh, boy meets girl. They, probably they don't get along at first. They start to get along. They fall in love. They consummate their relationship. Something goes bad, splinters their relationship. They get back together right at the end. If this sounds familiar, that's because this is in almost every single story told. Uh, the, the vast majority uh, have followed this sort of path and this pattern, and there's a reason for it. Largely, it does work. It is a familiar concept, regardless of what language you speak, what country you're born in. You can kind of understand the steps that go along with that cycle of storytelling, even if you don't sort of hold yourself to be part of a heteronormative world or you know, you might be of a different persuasion, you might have a different uh, gender preference. All of that uh, aside, you still can understand the basic beats of this trope and why it's sort of used so much. So it being uh, something that is largely universally understood and something that uh, kind of defies language barriers and things like that, and is relatively a cheap gimmick to film, right? There's not a whole hell of a lot of CGI required, not animatronics, like, uh, you know, um, it is everywhere, as I said many times. And so it becomes a bit of a lazy piece, a lazy mechanic for writers, because you just kind of throw that in there and uh, then you're done with it. And it, it, it sort of gives you a very easy arc. It gives your characters some direction, and once the relationship splinters or fractures, it gives them action for the third act to take. You know, it puts them on a path. Uh, But, as I said, we've seen it all before, and really, it's very, very boring and very dull. And most people's lives are not that arc. That that makes up a, a fraction of our lives and of our relationships with other people in this world. So good storytelling can kind of subvert that story arc or avoid it altogether. In many ways, I think that Robocop by Paul Verhoeven is a subversion of this trope, right? You have this character who cannot have a heterosexual consummation of a relationship. He doesn't have the parts anymore. and. Part of his agita and what torments him is that piece missing. And, and Verhoeven is, is probably one of the smartest filmmakers alive. 
And, uh, you know, he clearly understands this and it is a major factor in the telling of Robocop. It also could sort of justify or explain the very, the, the ease he has in inflicting massive amounts of violence. Whether or not it's due to the, the enemy characters uh, is besides the point. It uh, makes me also think of Kubrick and Dr. Strangelove, like that is the entire catalyst of the story is, uh, you know, erection problems for uh, one of the generals. You can also take a movie uh, like Benjamin Button by David Fincher, a movie I didn't really want to see. I went along on a date to see it, and I ended up being actually very surprised and really enjoying it because Benjamin Button does sort of lay out all the different types of romantic love you may experience in your life. And it does also kind of have this very similar sort of story arc of consummation with uh, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett's characters, but it does also tilt it on its head and it shows this wide variety of experiences that the character has. Now, why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about this? Because there is a really fantastic series that is exploring exactly the inverse of that standard love interest storytelling trope. And that is the HBO miniseries Irma Vep. Now, I've talked about Irma Vep before, the 1993 film. This is by the same creator. This is a miniseries on HBO. It stars Alicia Vikander, and it is fantastic. It is arguably even better than the original film, which I love very dearly, and is not in my top 10 films, but definitely in my top 15, if not top 20 films of all time. The original 93 film uh, has this really beautiful moment where two characters do not hook up. And there's a lot of tension there. You think it's gonna happen. Uh, it seems like it would be a wonderful experience. And they just kind of miss each other. And it's not really a big deal overall in the story. It's not the crux of the film, but it's this very bittersweet sort of exchange where the opposite of a heterosexual consummation happens. It is two people that just, they, they miss each other very briefly, two ships passing in the night. And we as the audience are left unsatisfied and sort of left to wonder what that could have been. We really wanted to see it happen, but it doesn't happen and that's okay. It actually feels better. It leaves a deeper impact. You know, you, you think about the things you're longing for rather than the things you already gorged yourself on. Fast forward to 2022, this new miniseries. Um, it's, it's brilliant in many different ways, one of which is that uh, <laughs> it's not really a relaunch. It is kind of a remix. Um, I, I, I find myself sort of conflicted about speaking too much about it because I, I think the surprise is really worth it for people. But again, in this series, as with the 93 film, same director, same creator, uh, maybe not same director, sorry, same creator, um, we get all these wonderful scenes of a very charismatic, very attractive Alicia Vikander, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, and her interacting with all these people, uh, many of them, you know, there's a romantic spark between them, and we sort of go through her life, and we go through all of these relationships that uh, don't satisfy us, 
right? There's, there's no payoff thus far. There's a lot of, like, attraction. There's a lot of, like, uh, subtle lust that's going on in these scenes. Uh, but so far there's no payoff. And, you know, the experience is so much deeper because you are just sort of watching real humans kind of interact in a very naturalistic way. Um, it is it, it is such the opposite of the majority of films that are still being made to this day, where that old romantic trope, that story arc, is just there and it's used and, you know, we're not catching any sparks off of it. Uh, this is really like the, the polar opposite of that, and it shows all these different very complex, very nuanced ways that human beings kind of deal with each other, especially in the romantic realm. I find myself really very animated about my love for this series and the creator's work because uh, it, to me, just hits all these notes, these emotions that are sorely missing from the endless pit of streaming options. You know, there is, as I've said many times, there is now more content than any one human will ever watch, and it it's adding thousands and thousands more series and films that we will never get to. And the whole thing is just very vanilla. It's it's a, a it's a brown muddled mess of noise. There's not very much good stuff going on with all of these endless streaming options that we have. So when something like this comes along and pops out, it one definitely informs me as a storyteller or as uh, you know a comic book writer or a short story writer it, it informs me that like you can kind of get away from that trope and you can give a multi-dimensional life to your characters by not just going down that same story arc you know the relationship between Rex and Saima that is one of misconnections and never really getting on the same wavelength, never really jumping at the opportunity. Uh, and that's probably very unsatisfying for some people. But it is true to life. So again, I really want to encourage people to go and watch the original film and then watch this miniseries. I think it'll be very rewarding for you. It is, uh, by most blockbuster standards, a pretty boring affair. It is largely people talking. There's a lot of inside baseball about filmmaking in the film industry. Uh, but I think it's fantastic. I think there are so many lessons to glean out of this series and the movie originally as well. Uh, that is absolutely worth your time. I think you guys would really, really dig it. So go and check it out. Uh, it has my highest recommendation. Irma Veep on, sorry, Irma Vep. I think it's Irma Vep. Also, Veep is great too. You should watch that. Absolutely. That's a great series as well. But Irma Veep, Vep, goddammit, Irma Vep on HBO. Moving along, we're going to enter into the Tomimoto zone with a question from Lance Tomimoto. This is going to kick off our Q&A segment. What are your recommendations for the most comfortable shoes? Lately, my feet have been hurting at work. Uh, I, uh, I feel your pain. Absolutely. Uh, I wear, most of the time, a pair of Crocs. But these are a pair of Crocs I got in Japan, and I have not seen 
the same style or make in the United States. I don't know if it's that I don't spend enough time hanging out at croc stores or if that this is actually a unique style that is only available overseas. But in any case, in the summer anyway, these are my go-to shoes and they're beyond comfortable. A funny story, uh, I think my last trip to Japan, uh, usually I fly to Hong Kong, spend a day in China, then a couple days in Hong Kong, and then leave from Hong Kong to China. It's about a five or six hour flight. And uh, on that flight from Hong Kong to Japan, my feet swelled up. And I guess that's not uncommon when you're, you know, dealing with air pressure and things like that. But uh, I, it, it sort of caused like an ingrown toenail situation. My, my toe was in a ton of pain and it was huge. Uh, so I landed and I was like limping around. It was, it was uh, really quite an unpleasant situation. Um, I've had a, an ingrown toenail before. I think probably everybody has. They're not necessarily any fun. And so uh, Japan is a city that you walk a hell of a lot. And it's very compact and uh, very convenient to kind of walk everywhere. And there's all these wonderful scenic temples and uh, uh, little nature areas block to block. So it's, it's quite a nice city to walk in. And uh, I unfortunately had to kick off that leg of the trip um, severely in pain. So my good friend Takashi took me to a department store and I said, fuck it, I'm going, this is it. It's the path, it's the point of no return. I'm going to become a Crocs guy. And I bought these very cool Crocs. Now, looking down at them, you probably wouldn't even realize they were Crocs. They're so cool. They're so stylish. But I'm glad I made the jump. They are the most comfortable shoes you could possibly have. I've spent years making fun of people wearing Crocs, but tell you what, there's something to it. And now a quick message from our sponsor. Thank you. That's... That's been a word from our sponsor. God forbid I try to record this podcast before feeding my cat. He will interrupt to let us know he's very upset about that. Next up is Jerry Bow. Since the hologram chest didn't work out as hoped, when does development commence on a Magic 8-Ball gimmick? Um, yeah, I think I'm staying away from gimmicks for a while. <laughs> that, uh, the hologram chest experiment, it, it you know, it's unfortunate. It, it was a... a relatively big investment of capital at a time when that is not really a, a great move for me. And, uh, you know, when I sort of venture down these paths, obviously failure is always going to be one possible outcome, but I'm always hoping I can kind of capitalize on the vision I see in my head and execute that in reality. And this is one of those that just kind of fell short of that. So, uh, you know, I think Probably I'm going to stick to my guns and just keep making the toys I know how to make. Next up from Matt Connolly, what's your favorite dance move when the groove has got you in its grasp? Uh, do you have a favorite song that makes you want to dance whenever you hear it? Uh, in terms of dance moves, you got to let the music speak to you. I don't think you can go out there with a set plan. You just have to move your body in relation to how it's compelling you to do so. I think that's... That is my philosophy on dance. Uh, there's any number of songs that will get me moving every time I hear them. Uh, 
Sandstorm by Darube, absolutely. That's right up there. Um, A Little Respect by Eraser. Almost any Depeche Mode song. list goes on and on. Uh, I think you guys can probably follow me on Spotify to to learn more. In doing some more Crocs research on their website, I have found out that the shoe I have is the Light Ride Clog. Uh, I do not see the actual sort of color and style of the one I have, but these are available uh, apparently in the U.S. So, you know, I might get a second pair. I really... I've become a complete convert for uh, the power of Crocs. And at 60 bucks for a pair that you're going to wear for years and years, that's, that's less than 10 cents a day. Okay, folks? This segment was sponsored by Crocs. Next up, a question from Charlie Pope. I've been interested in Chicane recently. I watched someone play through the game and read the first issue, thinking of copying, uh, sorry, copying the next few volumes from his website soon. Have you and Robert made uh, definite separate universes or do all of these characters coexist in the same universe so uh i think it was before your time charlie but the first chicane action figure that we released uh we did so on a card and with a blister we had some great artwork from aaron archer famous uh toy designer of kenner and hasbro fame uh he did not only the sort of I think the cover art, but also a small comic on the back of the card. And that comic showed none other than Shikan, Forever Man, crossing into the dimension of Knights of the Slice and them working together. So it is canon. It has been definitely established uh, in the storytelling that these entities know each other and have worked together and probably have warm feelings about each other. So uh, that is the magic and the beauty of the independent toy scene. We're able to string these things together without a lot of legal nonsense and contractual obligations and things like that. It's also worth noting as a reminder, in case you missed this news earlier, uh, Robert himself is coming to Toy Pizza Con and setting up. You can meet the man, the myth, the legend himself. He might even have a brand new Chicane colorway to release at the show. July 16th, Happy Valley in Beacon, New York. It's going to be quite wonderful. As soon as I get through five points, I'm really going to start focusing on Toy Pizza Con and uh, maximizing what we're going to do at that show. So um, if you are within a day's drive, if you're in, uh, maybe if you're within a few hours drive, I think it might be worth your time to come in. Also worth noting, uh, Toy Pizza Con is on a Saturday. The next day, Sunday, there's the Beacon Flea Market, which is a, by all accounts, a small flea market, but actually a really, really good one that I've scored major stuff at and I have set up at before. I think some of our vendors are actually going to set up at the Beacon Flea on that Sunday. So if you guys want to make it a weekend, there's plenty to do and see. Next up, a question from Ian Amling. During your time in NYC, did you ever experience anything like what's portrayed in Harmony Corinne's films? Um, so I would say that I did not experience anything NYC-based that's like Harmony Corinne's films. However, I can tell you, true to life, 
are his films that take place in Florida, specifically The Beach Bum, starring Matthew McConaughey. Uh, that is the Florida and the South Florida experience 100%. All of the seemingly ostentatious and over-the-top cartoonish characters in that film are very much what you experience in South Florida on a daily basis. Like, I, I think that that is a, an absolute masterclass in depiction of the reality of that sort of uh, location. Absolutely. Spring Breakers also, and uh, James Franco's character, 100% the type of people that uh, you meet in Florida. I, now, as many know, I worked in the restaurant industry, uh, you know, as a waiter, as a dishwasher briefly, as um, a bartender. So I met all these types of characters, and specifically, like, people that would hang out at Irish pubs at 3 and 4 a.m. So uh, I got to really see the seedy underbelly of Florida. But that's, just, that's the thing about Florida, right? It is really separated into abject poverty and just immense wealth, right? And there's very little in between there. And so both of these factions are sort of rubbing elbows together. And then there's a huge criminal element, and that is kind of the connective tissue between these two classes there. So it, it, it's really, I mean, I haven't lived in every place, but it, it's truly a unique place uh, to live and, and try and exist. And the entire time you're there, you're sort of, maybe just subconsciously, but you're, you realize that surrounding you are oceans that will eventually swallow the land you're standing on, and the land itself is just a unstable swamp that's been filled in with garbage and landfill in order to build cheap condos on top of it. So the entire place feels like a powder keg, you know, one that, that is due for a cataclysm. And uh, I, I think that, that that mixed with the fact that it's a transient state, like there's very few people kind of born there. You know, most people matriculate there, whether it's the snowbirds or retirees or uh, wealth criminals from overseas. It is this this nexus of, uh, you know, I, I, chaos, I guess I would say. But uh, truly unique and, and a filmmaker that obviously understands that and is able to kind of put it down on film. Next up from Gabe S. What are your band members' music's musical backgrounds? Um, so mine is zero, none, obviously, well established. Uh, Dan, also known as Hatman, uh, who typically is playing keyboard for us. Uh, Dan is a multi-instrumentalist guy. He can play guitar, he can play keyboard, he uh, knows his scales. I'm not sure if he can read music, but uh, Dan is a pretty intuitive player. Uh, I don't know that he would say he's the most technically finessed uh, musician in the world, but he has a good instinct. He can kind of uh, lean into what somebody else is doing and add ingredients on top of it. He's a vibe guy. He gets the vibe. He lays down the vibe. So his job in these songs is sort of, uh, he's putting a layer of shellac on everything. 
He's making it sound deeper, more vibrant. Uh, if there's a tone shift, he's kind of orchestrating that and, and leaning into it and, and giving us, you know, a, a more sinister sound if we need it, something lighter if we need it, uh, some intensity if it's a chorus. So that's where his skill set is. Now, Brendan, who mainly plays guitar, uh, but a guitar run through, you know, a obscene amount of pedals and being distorted beyond any recognizable signal. Uh, Brendan is a, you know, like once in a hundred years multi-instrumentalist. Uh, can play anything you put in front of him. Can play the banjo, can play the keys, can, you know. He also has a museum-like collection of synths. He is a synth guy. He loves synthesizers as much as I do. And uh, Brendan really, like, uh, he's just a powerhouse. You know, you're, you're giving him a weapon, not an instrument. And so while I take care of kind of the rhythm and the bass, and I set that up to guide the other two, Brendan is just launching nuclear missiles from his command station, you know, as the song gets going. Um, I've, you know, I've been lucky to have a lot of uh, musicians sort of come through and play in the basement and jam with me. And Brendan is by far like one of those genius level guys when it comes to playing and making music. Brendan also plays in a bunch of other bands, uh, but I think he would tell you he has the most fun with Zed Star 7. It's also worth noting we've had quite a few different people jam with us. Jules Lenahan, who plays a ukulele and has an amazing voice. Obviously, everybody loves when Jules pops in. Uh, Steve Vera, who was at the very first session where I brought in other people. Bobby Torres on bass and keys. Uh, Michael Scottum, Draculaser. He has uh, graced his presence up here. We've just recently had two friends from Iceland, uh, two pretty renowned DJs from Iceland come in, uh, Atli and Aush, and uh, we put together a lot of really fun songs. They're, they're great, great duo. And uh, Alex Van Gils, who was one of the earliest people I played with. Alex is probably on the level of Brendan, a professional musician. Um, and uh, our songs, Eight Minute Punk and Interpol in Miami, that was with Alex Van Gils. That was super early in my experimentation with Zed Star 7. And, uh, you know, a guy that completely outclassed me, but together we sort of made some really good tunes. Next question from Sean Gordon. If you had the opportunity to do a HasLab-type offering for Knights of the Slice, what would it be? This is assuming it would definitely reach the funding goal. Uh, for those who don't know, HasLab is Hasbro's crowdfunding engine. They put up kind of impossible figures and playsets and vehicles. And if it gets enough backing, they actually make these toys that would never exist on store shelves. So in theory, I, you know, I, I quite like the HasLab uh, premise. Um, I would say they haven't done much that catches my eye since the uh, Jabba Sail Barge, which even though, you know, I was super excited about, I grew tired of it pretty quickly and ended up selling it. So what would my gigantic, crazy project be 
uh, if I sort of had you know, a, a critical mass of customers who were going to go in on, on something completely insane. And uh, how would I pull the trigger on that? Uh, it, it, that's an interesting question, and I don't have sort of an immediate answer to that necessarily. I, I think, like, maybe venturing into a different scale might be interesting. Um, you know, obviously, like a six or seven inch scale figure that's fully articulated. But then again, you know, I say that and then I think, well, we're not going to make a better toy than Thousand Toys, Knights of the Synth. So, uh, like, what's the point? <laughs> um, so maybe something more 12-inch and high-end with real cloth. Uh, I have had several sort of false starts in developing something like that. And to the point where I actually had buck bodies that I could utilize that were already tooled. I would just sort of have to provide new heads and clothing. Uh, but very, very tough market to do it in. Uh, if you haven't noticed, most of the 12-inch figure releases and, and the successful companies are doing it at the $300 plus MSRP. There's not, all, there's not any space or any air really for, you know, a medium effort, let's say $50 12-inch figure just kind of doesn't exist because you kids can go to Target and get for $10 those pretty god-awful Hasbro or Fortnite 12-inch figures that are just sort of plastic, no cloth elements or things like that. So um, that's a scale that certainly interests me, but um, not one that I've been able to kind of uh, make a move and do. So obviously, uh, category-wise, you sort of move to, okay, vehicles or play sets. But I got to tell you, I, I'm, I hate vehicles and play sets right now. Um, as you sort of try to lighten your collection, those are the two things that really, really bog you down. And for me, I lose interest pretty quick in either of those categories. And uh, space, space is so precious. Um, I just can't commit to something that, like, is not going to have a lot of use uh, all the time. The thing for me, personally, with vehicles and playsets, I fiend after them, I get them, I unpack them, maybe I make a video, I set them up once, I display some figures on them, and then, inevitably, they just get tossed in the basement and collect dust, and, you know, I have a hard time sort of moving them beyond that point. So... It's really tough, and, and no specific vehicle or playset pop out at me. I, this, how about let's just say this: a uh, floating subsidy pool toy that is to scale with subsidy and uh, features built-in GoPro cameras, so you can kind of shoot footage of your diver figure uh, bobbing below. Next up from Thomas Bucci, what living artist would be your dream pick to do artwork for a future Night of the Slice comic book or card slicer card? I would say Paul Pope. That's the name that comes to mind. I think he's fantastic. Uh, that would be my pick for sure. Our last question comes from Brent Barnacle. What is your favorite Toy Biz 90s X-Men figure? Brett has asked the impossible question here. <laughs> this cannot be answered 
to any level of satisfaction. It is no surprise that I consider 90s toy biz to probably be the pinnacle of not just inspiration for myself and for my line, but, but really like toy making. This is where things, the, the first couple pieces fell into place that would bring us things like McFarlane Toys, Super Articulation, Marvel Legends, and the explosion of the hobby from that point on. I've also been, for the past probably two or three years, I guess really intensely during the pandemic, um, sort of recollecting 90s toy biz. Generally, though, I like to do it as they are found organically at flea markets or tag sales. Um, it's a little less fun to, like, track them down on eBay and, you know, um, pursue it that way rather than just kind of, like, finding and discovering what Marvel toy biz you come across. So this is a sort of line and a topic and a question that's very fresh in my mind. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, I think actually Nikki and I have dedicated two different videos uh, to 90s Toy Viz, one of them being a live stream that we did relatively recently uh, on Twitch. So um, you should check out those. I'm sure I'm going to give some information that's contrary to what we laid out in, in uh, those couple of videos, but let me see what I can do. And also, before I give you some of my picks, uh, I do want to uh, share that there was a portion of this line that I really overlooked when I was a kid that I've come to appreciate quite a great deal uh, nowadays, and that is the 10-inch versions of these figures. Now, the 10-inch scale is not one that really lent itself to play. Um, I find these are better display pieces, but really some fantastic stuff happening there. And a couple figures that they made in the 10-inch line that were not made in the smaller line. And uh, generally, it's kind of interesting to see these, these smaller sculpts get pantographed up. Or in some cases, they were utilizing two-ups, and, and these might be the one-to-one -one translation of them. But in any case, um, I completely slept on and avoided the 10-inch line when it was at retail and it was dirt cheap. Uh, I have now come to appreciate this, even though I'm not really trying to fill out my collection that much with, uh, with that, that sort of sub-line. So my usual go-tos here are Space Wolverine. I mean, that's a, a fantastic figure. Um, there's a couple interesting color variants that have been released for him. So that's a fun one to track down. There's also 10-inch versions of him in different colors as well. Um, the, I think it's Web Splasher's Venom. It's this mutated, oozing black version of Venom with green fins. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is a Phil Ramirez sculpt, and it's really fantastic. It's, it's my favorite version of Venom, and just a unique take on the character that we didn't see anywhere else. Also, uh, another piece of Phil Ramirez is Sculpting Legacy. The, uh, I think it's Ninja Force, Wolverine and Sabretooth. This is Joe Mad style versions of these characters. I love those figures to death. I, I think they're so amazing. They're probably my favorite uh, 3D versions of Joe Mad and uh, Wolverine and Sabretooth. So those always rank really, really high. So not really answering an impossible question, but doing my best. I would love to hear from you guys which figures you would pick for the number one slot of 90s Toy Biz characters.
Before I sign off, I think it's uh, probably a good time to touch base and lay out where my brain's at and the state of Knights of the Slice and Toy Pizza and things like that. It's a very interesting time around here. There are some external pressures that are converging on a single point, that point being me and my sanity. Um, My house is going through some construction, which uh, is very disruptive. We don't have a kitchen right now. We didn't have water for an entire day. Uh, All that, not great, right? But necessary. The the ends will justify the means. It's going to look really great once uh, all this construction's done. But that has uh, certainly been a stressor. Also, as mentioned in a previous podcast, I have taken on outside consulting work. I'm helping uh, some friends I love very much develop a licensing strategy. It is a lot of fun to do. I got to be honest. Um, you know, I have a certain level of expertise and being able to apply that knowledge is very rewarding for me. And to be able to do so and in service to people that I want to see succeed, uh, it's a great sort of uh, exchange. It's a great experience for me. And while I was sort of avoiding real work for (laughs) many years, uh, I actually find this to be quite fulfilling. So I'm happy to do it. And also, it uh, definitely alleviates a lot of financial pressure that producing plastic over in China tends to incur on a single creator. The other piece of this um, is that Zed Star 7 is booking shows. And it's it's kind of crazy to me, but uh, we have managed to convince quite a few people that this is uh, a band worth putting on a stage. And so, this is our Beatles in Hamburg moment. We, we've just gotten off of two nights in a row, hardcore, practice sessions, we are fine-tuning our craft, we're getting very good. Uh, We just recorded a new song, which I'm going to put at the end of this, and I think is one of our best songs easily. And so we're going to kick this off this Sunday at Five Points Fest 1.30 on the network stage. We're going to be performing live. It is streaming on the network app, so you can watch it there. Uh, Then we have Toy Pizza Con, of course. We'll be doing a smaller, more vibey set. Uh, no guitars with that one and then we're going to be playing a local bar in August and we might have a couple dates that pop up prior to that so uh, playing music is very fulfilling to me right now I get to hang out with my friends it's not such a solitary pursuit as toy making is for those who have tuned into the recent twitch streams you'll see I'm actually I've uh, cleared a lot of space in the workshop and we're utilizing that as practice space to get ready for these shows and and to really fine-tune our portable rigs so that in any environment we could essentially play the type of music that uh, we need to play. Now all of these things are ultimately very positive developments and I'm feeling good, I'm feeling fulfilled, I'm feeling realigned in a way that I haven't felt since the start of this year. And what this means is that the store is probably not going to be open as much. And I'm probably not going to do small store updates, but rather go back to a schedule, at least for the immediate future, around events where I have enough time to kind of breathe and plan things out and introduce new styles and things like that. 
for most of this year, from January onward, there's been a lot of small, sporadic store openings, and I have done so in order to keep revenue coming in and pay my bills and order the product I need to, to make. Uh, with delays in China still ongoing, that has that had put me in a very precarious situation financially. So it's part of the reason I entered back into the job market and was lucky enough to get some consulting work. And because that isn't a necessity, I can kind of tamper down on the number of releases I have and try to focus more on opening it when it makes sense, when I have the time to fulfill these orders, and also uh, when I feel good about the product mix I have. There have been times so far this year where I didn't feel necessarily great about the items I was putting in the store, but I needed to make money that week simply to keep the lights on. So um, I would like to avoid doing that as much as possible. And I think I'm just going to, during this summer, I'm not going to be afraid to turn the store off and just breathe and not have to worry about fulfilling a handful of orders. So you're probably going to see more of that. If you're a patron, there's probably not going to be much of a difference here. You're still going to get your action figure of the Millennia Club figures. Nothing's going to change there. You're still going to get special offers. You're still going to get early access to sales. But the frequency is probably going to be less. And I'm guessing for those, uh, you know, dealing with the recession in the same way I am, it's probably better that there's less smaller things to buy and we kind of tighten our focus into bigger event drops that, uh, you know, we can all sort of gravitate towards and, and get behind. Something like the Diver, which is on the horizon. Like, it probably makes more sense just to wait that out and have a really big go at it when it gets here, rather than kind of tease out small incremental stuff that not everybody buys, quite frankly. So I'm just sort of speaking off the cuff and stream of consciousness style but that's where my head's at, and I think it's all a very positive development for me. I, I really, in being able to work on other people's projects, I really come to understand how far my head is buried up my own ass for the past couple years, because all I did was work on my own stuff. And that is a blessing and a curse at the same time, because you obsess over your property and your project and your efforts. 24 hours a day, right? When I work on somebody else's brand, I obsess, you know, to an appropriate amount. A couple hours a day, uh, prior to a phone call, whatever that sort of milestone is, I'm applying my obsessive nature. Uh, but there is a finite sort of beginning and end to it. And I don't have to take the work home with me, so to speak. And that's been really refreshing and recharging for my brain because... Uh, when you are sort of constructing your own baby, you there is no end to the amount of creativity or neuroses you pour into it. And that can be exhausting. After a few years, for me, it's, it's really uh, tapped me out completely. And by having less store drops in the store open less frequently, at least throughout the summer, this also lets me get through Five Points Fest, which is fast approaching. By the time you listen to this, it might have already happened. Uh, but then also switch gears and start focusing on making Toy Pizza Con 
the very best show it can be on July 16th. Happy Valley, Beacon, New York. So uh, this is all sort of, these points are all converging at the right time. Uh, It's been a really, really difficult year. I know it's been a difficult year for a lot of you as well. And uh, I'm starting to feel like kind of waking up from the coma and, you know, taking steps towards this next chapter that is going to be a better fit and less stressful for me. And uh, so that's where I'm at. And I think it's all extremely positive developments. Also, by the way, card slicers, (laughs) the, the real work is happening there now. And it is really a mammoth undertaking. And like all projects I do, I sort of underestimate how much actual work goes into them. I have the idea, I know I have the fan base, and I just sort of launch things. I, I never think through these things, obviously. I would never launch something if I thought these through all the way. But that is a big, big uh, undertaking right now. It's burning a lot of my calories. And so all of this makes sense to kind of do less drops and just focus on the good stuff. So... Uh, that's another sort of facet of this thinking here. But I think Card Slicers is going to be great. I know Diver is going to be amazing. It's going to be mind-blowing for everybody. Toy Pizza Con is going to be a wonderful experience. And uh, maybe I'll see a few of you at Five Fest this weekend. But that's everything I got. I thank you guys for the uh, endless appreciation and support. Uh, I'm going to leave you with our brand new song just recorded mere hours ago. Blinded by Lights from Z Star 7. Pizza out.
exist, if only there were people.